If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 11, the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And last Sunday, uh, I spoke at the beginning and at the end of the sermon on the importance of context, that you have to see what is happening or what is being said within the context. And my focus last Sunday, at least, was on those who claim to believe what the Bible teaches, but then they take certain verses or certain passages out of context, allowing the verses or the passages to say something either different from what was intended, or they get it to say what they want it to say. I find it very striking how many cults there are who, in fact, use the Bible as their source. And I'm like, if you're using the same Bible I am, why is it that you have such a radically different view? It's because they've taken passages out of context. But today, as we start, I want to expand a bit and talk about two other groups of people. The first are those who are not believers, those who do not uh, accept what the Bible teaches, Um, And what will happen from time to time is they will bring up certain verses or certain passages which prove to them that the Bible does not have any moral authority. And what they've done is they've taken these verses or these passages out of context. But there's a second group. These are those who were once a part of the church who may have at one time called themselves believers. By the way, if you go to YouTube, you can find any number of videos of people who used to either be in ministry or claim to be Christians who are now atheists. And what they, they have left the faith for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is that they have taken certain passages and have taken them out of context to say something different than what is intended. And they say, yeah, I can't be a Christian. If this is what the Bible teaches, then I, I can't be a Christian. I cannot approve of that. And so I would argue they've not really left the faith. What they have done instead is embrace a different understanding of just a part of Scripture rather than seeing the whole story. One of those passages was what we studied last week. Um, if you look at verse, uh, verse, beginning at verse 12, Uh, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Then verse number 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. And I can well imagine how some might say, in fact, indeed have said, how petty of Jesus, like a short-tempered little kid. He went to a fig tree. There were no figs, but there shouldn't have been because it wasn't the season for figs. And when he was hungry, he wanted figs. There were none. And so he curses the tree. We looked at this last week, and I think saw it correctly. But what is the problem? And the problem is for believers who have left the church, or for those who are not believers, or those who are in the church and yet really have a skewed view of things, is they don't see the big picture. 
what in modern terms is called a meta-narrative, an overarching account from beginning to end. We keep talking about creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's the meta-narrative. And people today have chosen their own meta-narrative, their own narrative of how the story should go. So they read this passage and they view Jesus as petty, God is judgmental, and some have said, in fact, I'm better than God because I'm not that judgmental. And I'm better than Jesus because I wouldn't curse a tree just because it doesn't have fruit when it's not supposed to have any fruit. Of course, what we find oftentimes is they don't reject scripture in total because if you do that, then you have to get rid of the Ten Commandments, do not commit murder, do not steal. Well, no, we want to keep those parts. They reject, reject certain parts and keep uh, what they want. And so they see Jesus as a good man. He was a good teacher. He did good things. Yeah, he lost his temper from time to time and did things he shouldn't do, which means he wasn't the son of God. And it probably means he didn't do miracles. And so instead of taking the whole thing, thing, the meta-narrative, they simply pick and choose and create their own story. That's not just a problem today. That's the problem the disciples and the crowd has had probably since the beginning as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. What we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is that the disciples are just as non-understanding, they don't understand, just like Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, the scribes. Because in the disciples' minds, they've got the story. This is the guy, and this is how the story is going to go. They fail to recognize that he is unique. They fail to recognize the nature of the kingdom of God. That's why James and John want to be on the right and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. They fail to see Jesus within the context of the Old Testament. And the bottom line is, They're unhappy with the way the story is going. So when Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 31, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be betrayed. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed, be handed over. He's going to be killed. And Peter takes him aside and says, stop that. That's not the way the story goes. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. In other words, you're telling an entirely different story than the way it's supposed to go. We saw that Jesus was rather harsh, or so it seemed, with the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And we might say, with the, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't use such language that could be perceived as racist. Or when he healed the man, the man who was deaf and then had a speech impediment, where he sticks his fingers in his ear and then he spits on his fingers and touches the man's tongue. He's like, yeah... That, that's not the way I would do things. The feeding of the 4,000. Bread, break it. Pray, break the bread, hand it out. Oh, here's some fish. Pray, break it up, hand it out. It's like, can't you be a little more efficient in, in your praying? Like the disciples, I think many people would say, I have a better vision of what the kingdom of God should look like. I have a better idea of how God should be at work in the world. This is exemplified 
on the, in the events of Palm Sunday. Jesus comes into the city on a colt. People put down cloaks. They put down branches. And what are they doing? They're like, ooh, this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to die for our sins and redeem us from sin. Not at all. Not at all. Oh, this is the guy from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. No. What they are thinking is, you know, 200 years ago, another guy did this, Judas Maccabeus. He defeated the Greeks, the Seleucid Empire. And he came into Jerusalem in a triumphal entry. And now Jesus is going to do the same thing to the Romans. He's going to kick them out and we are going to have peace and prosperity. See, they were thinking of an entirely different story. So they say, Hosanna, you know, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. This is great. But they're in a different storybook. They're not accepting the narrative that God has laid down. So let's get back to the fig tree. What is that all about? Well, if you remember from last Sunday, this happens on uh, Monday. Uh, Sunday is Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And then he goes back to Bethany to spend the night. Monday he comes and as he leaves, he sees the fig tree. He curses it. And then he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. He cleans it out. He judges it like this is my father's house. It's a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He judges it just like he did the fig tree. The fig tree was a parable. It was an illustration of what he was going to do in the temple and what would come later on. The place of sacrifice had been turned into a marketplace. And Jesus says this is not acceptable. He judges it. Um, As I mentioned last week, I don't think the primary concern for Jesus is the commercialization of religion. That is a danger, by the way. Uh, It is a real danger for religion to be commercialized. Okay. But what Jesus wants the people to know and his disciples to know who heard him curse the fig tree, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Which I think would have been really hard for the disciples. Here's a man who there's 5,000 people, they have no food, and he tells the disciples, feed them. We don't have enough money. Jesus feeds them. They're people who are demon-possessed, people who are ill. There are people whose children are ill, someone whose daughter has died. And Jesus always acts with compassion. And suddenly this guy sort of becomes this raving lunatic, driving people out of the temple. It's like, what's this about? Well, you can't see that apart from the story of the fig tree. That's the matter of seeing things in a particular context. And that's not the end of the story. Jesus says, if you have faith to say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, uh, people have taken that to say, well, if you have enough faith, you can have anything. No, Jesus is talking about the temple mount. That if you have faith, God will judge this temple as Jesus has just done. And yet that's not the end of the story. Because people are like, oh, I like that part about having enough faith. He goes on to say in verses 25 and 26, 
And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so, your fa- so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in- who is in heaven forgive your sins. Forgiveness is the last word, not judgment. I think that is something we should take to heart. Lest we think, ooh, I have the power to curse someone. If I have faith, I can say to someone, you are being judged. Um, The last word is, in fact, forgiveness. We are to remember what God has done for us. He has forgiven our sins. Now we come to verse number 27. It is Tuesday of the week we know now as Holy Week or the Passion Week. Jesus and his disciples have been staying in Bethany. I think it's about seven miles away. And so at the end of the day, they go. We think they're staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, and now it is this, uh, the Tuesday of that week, and Jesus returns to the temple. Verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Some things to consider here. Jesus is once again in the temple courts. The day before is when he had driven out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the table of the money changers, the tables of the money changers, and the benches of those selling doves. And he will not allow anyone to do a shortcut through the temple court from Jerusalem proper to get to the Mount of Olives. It becomes sort of a shortcut and it, He will not allow that. He is confronted by three components of the Sanhedrin. That is the Supreme Court of the Jewish uh, people under the Romans. They are the ones who made religious decisions. They are the chief priests. This refers to the Sadducees. This is something that was supposedly was to be hereditary. It wasn't always. But they are in charge of the temple and the sacrificial system. That's what they do. Then you have the teachers of the law, also known as scribes. This group is probably made up primarily of Pharisees, those who are not part of the temple system, but go out and teach in the synagogues and tell people what the Old Testament has to say and what they should do. And then you have the elders, the local leaders or rulers over the tribes or the tribal divisions. Um, I think we would call them the lay members of the Sanhedrin. So the priest... You know, they take care of the temple and stuff. The Pharisees, I would say they are in charge of the synagogues. And then you have the elders who are the lay leaders of the Sanhedrin. So it is the totality, the totality of the religious authorities in the Jewish, among the Jewish people. By the way, um, if you go to chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said that, in fact, these three groups are the ones who are going to arrest him and put him to death. So here it is. We see that, in fact, they are now confronting him. Uh, 
They asked Jesus two questions. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority to do it? It boils down to this. Where are your credentials? Okay. What gives you the right to do these things? Who authorized you to do this? The question that arises with the first question is, what do they mean by these things? Okay, it's Tuesday. Sunday he came in and people were throwing the cloaks and, and the palm branches on the road. Uh, Monday is when he cleaned out the temple. Um, but before that he'd been teaching and healing. So what, is, what are they referring to? I think it's the cleansing of the temple. Uh, particularly the chief priests. Hey, we're in charge here. If anyone's going to clean up this mess, it's going to be us. But they challenge him by what authority does he do these things? He answers their two questions with a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? We have seen throughout the Gospel of Mark that Jesus generally answers questions with a question. Um, Culturally, I think it's something as Americans we're not comfortable doing. Um, I'll mention my mom here. We were discussing this. And she says, well, I was always taught in school that if somebody asks you a question, you give them an answer. That's what we're supposed to do. I think a question is much more provocative because it causes the person to think. If you give an answer, they can either say yes or no. But if you ask them a question, then they have to think through what it is that you have asked them. So about fasting. This is chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? What's the deal? Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? What does this mean? Well, now you have to think about it. Then about obeying the Sabbath or observing the Sabbath. The Pharisee said to him, look, why why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Okay, now I've got to go back to 1 Samuel and, and think about that story. Or about divorce. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What does he answer? What did Moses command you? Something we should really take to heart is that Jesus isn't just being clever or cute. Oh, he's playing a game with them, okay? He's not evading the given issue, okay? He's not avoiding the issue, okay? If, in fact, they answer his question, it will answer their question. Okay? If they answer his question, they will come to see the truth. And this certainly is the case in this, this incident here. Based on their answer, we might think, ooh, Jesus really backed them into a corner. Boy, he really out, he outwitted them. He outmaneuvered them. Um, when he says, you know, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they're like, well, let me see. If we say it's from heaven, Jesus will say, why didn't you believe him? And if we say it's from men, then the people are going to turn on us because they thought he really was a prophet. Stop and think a minute. Why does Jesus ask this particular question? 
John's baptism was one of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We saw this when we looked at the beginning in in chapter 1. Baptism was something you did to a Gentile. If a Gentile said, I now believe in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I want to become a part of the Jewish people, you had to get baptized. And in a real sense, it sort of was a rebirth. That when you go into the water, you are a Gentile. And when you come out, you are now a proselyte. You are now a Jew. You're part of the Jewish people. Okay? Baptism marked a transformation. Now John is preaching to Jews and saying to Jews, you need to get baptized. It's like, wait, John, I'm, I'm already a Jew. I, I'm not a Gentile. I'm not a pagan. Why do I need to be baptized? Well, it is to show that you have repented of your old way of life, your old way of thinking, and to say, I repent of that, and now I want to think and live in new ways. When Jesus began his public ministry, he also preached repentance. Now, most of us today, when we think of repentance, we think of, you need to stop sinning. And that's, Certainly that's a part of it. But there's other things as well. It means stop telling your own story. Stop imagining that you have the right narrative. And for the Jews, it was political, it was social. We need these Romans to get out of here. This is not their country. We need to be liberated. Jesus also means you need to turn back to God. In some ways, their hatred of the Romans and other things, had led them to focus on that rather than, oh, we are God's people. We are loyal to God. So, back to John's baptism. If they say it was from heaven, uh, then Jesus is the one that John announced. If they say, yes, John's baptism was divinely inspired, it's from heaven, This is John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If they believe that his baptism comes from heaven, then they have to say Jesus is the Messiah, the one that John had announced, he's coming after me. But they didn't believe John's message. They did not. Now, on the other hand, if they say, well, it's of men, uh, well, they have to deal with the people who believe that John, in fact, was a prophet. So either way, Jesus is the one that John said is coming after me. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. So what do these, these leaders, these religious leaders of Israel do? They take the coward's way up. We don't know. We don't know if it was from heaven or if it was of men. Then the question comes up, then why didn't Jesus just tell them? Why didn't Jesus just say, listen, it was from heaven, he announced me, I'm the Messiah, you guys need to believe in me. Because to those whose hearts are hardened against the truth, hearing the truth will have little or no effect. You may remember when we went through Matthew 7, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Their hearts are so hard, they will not receive the truth. 
Now we come to chapter 12. And Jesus now continues his practice of speaking in parables. Read the first 12 verses here. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then, they sent an, then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Jesus is once again, this is the last week before, in a few days, he will be hanging on a cross. He once again speaks with parables. We're told in chapter 4, verse number 34, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Okay. So we've seen the parables make up more than one-third of the teachings of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And yet this verse in 434 implies that everything Jesus did was in the form of parables. If we are to understand the ministry of Jesus in its context, then we need to understand and we need to pay attention to the parables. After he tells several parables in chapter 4, when he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So for the unbelievers, it's all parables. So that they may ever they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So there's a hidden aspect to the gospel that is put out in the parable form. And it's done in that way so that those who are on the outside will not come to understand. The parable that Jesus tells here is fairly straightforward. A guy apparently buys a piece of property. He plants a vineyard. He puts a wall around it to protect it from wild animals, from thieves, builds a wine press and a tower, I think also for protection. Um, and then he rents it out. This, this is an investment property. He rents it out to some farmers. And it came, comes time for him to receive some of the rent. Um, we're told that it was, in fact, for some of the fruit, but that fruit is for the rent, and in fact may have also been wine as well. Um, and the tenants apparently have no intention of paying rent. So they beat the first servant that he sends, um, and they send him away with nothing. They strike him on the head and treat him shamefully. 
The next servant they kill. And then there are many others. Some they beat and some they killed. And finally he has one last, one last person to send to them. And that is his son. A son whom he loved. Thinking they will respect my son. But the tenants had an insane idea. And I, it's the only word I can think of. They say, listen, let's kill the heir and then the inheritance will come to us. In what world does that happen? The owner is still alive. It's still his property. Okay, if you want to do anything, kill the owner. Then maybe you can claim the property. But no, no, let's kill the heir and then we get the inheritance. It's insane. And so the son is sent, they take him and they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And Jesus asks, how will the owner of the vineyard respond? He will kill the tenants. He will come in judgment, as Jesus did in the temple courts, kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Who is the son in the story? I think for us, after the fact, it seems fairly easy. At the baptism, as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In this story, Jesus is the son. who has been sent by the owner. One could easily say that the previous ones were the prophets, calling people to repentance, calling for them to give God what they owe him, their allegiance. Some of them they beat, and some of them they killed. And now the son is coming, and they're going to kill him. And then Jesus quotes scripture. He says, haven't you read this scripture? Now, you may remember, last week we looked at Palm Sunday. Um, Jesus coming in to Jerusalem. And people then shout and they quote from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as I said, they quote part of the psalm, but there's a part of the psalm they didn't quote. Jesus now quotes that part of Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. While the, ch- the crowd was cheering, not really understanding what was going on, uh, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He will be rejected. He is, in fact, the stone the builders will reject. The Sanhedrin will reject him. But he will, in fact, be the cornerstone, the capstone of the kingdom. And then he includes that verse that I think maybe the people on Palm Sunday would have included. But Jesus does, I think, in a very different way. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is a wonderful story, incident. But the most amazing part to me, what I find just truly amazing, is that the religious leaders understood this parable. I mean, isn't the whole purpose of the parables to sort of hide the truth for those who are on the outside? Jesus spoke in parables so that seeing they may not see, they may not perceive, uh, hearing they may not understand. 
But these guys get it. I, I find that to be truly amazing. I would say it is the grace of God that in grace God gave them insight into this parable as much as to say, this is my son and you guys are the wicked tenants who are refusing to give allegiance to the owner, that is to God. At this point, these religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they have two choices. They can do one of two things. They can either acknowledge him as the son or they can kill him. And we know what they end up doing. But at this point, they're not there yet because the Sanhedrin didn't have the right to, uh, for capital punishment. So they look for a way to arrest him. These men chose to be like the wicked tenants. They just need a way to do it without getting killed themselves in the process. They don't want to anger the crowd. And so they left him and went away. How truly tragic this is. Jesus tells them a story and says, listen, if you continue down this path, what do you think is going to happen to you? One more incident and then we'll be done today. It's the issue of paying taxes. And this we've talked about a number of times. Um, it is worth noting that at the beginning of this, our first passage today, the opponents tried to ask him a question, um, which in fact, well, let me start over. These people will do what others have done before. Let's ask him a trick question so that no matter how he answers it, he'll be in trouble. They did this on the question of divorce. As we saw, it was a political question, it was a theological question, it was a social question, and either way Jesus answered it, he'd be in trouble with someone. Well, once again, this unlikely, unlikely alliance, the Pharisees and the Herodians, these are the deeply religious and these are we'd almost call them the anti-religious, those who look to Herod for salvation. Once again, they come together in an alliance and they're going to try to trick Jesus. By the way, this goes back to chapter three. In chapter three, verse six, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This has been going on for a while. But now they've come up with a new strategy. They plan to trick Jesus and catch him in his words. Look, if you would, at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It's a change of tactics. The first, as I started to say earlier, the first group of people, it's all accusation. By what authority do you do these things? We want to see your credentials. Okay? Now they turn from accusation to flattery. 
We know you're a man of integrity, teacher, term of respect. You aren't swayed by men. You pay no attention to who they are. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Which is a joke because they don't believe what he's teaching, but they're trying to butter him up. So here's the trick question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Why is it a trick question? Because if Jesus says, no, you should not pay taxes, they can turn him into the Roman authorities. Which, if you look this up online or in the books, um, you have the temple area, which is huge. But one of the galling things that the Romans did was they built this huge tower whereby they could look in on the activities of what were happening in the temple grounds. The Roman soldiers could observe all the sacrifice. Other Jews couldn't do that, but the Romans could because they had this tower that was built in so they could spy on the Jews. So if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, it's like, hey, you've got a tax evader here. You've got a guy who says we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. On the other hand, if he says, yes, we should pay taxes, well, then the crowd turns against him. Nobody likes paying taxes, I would suggest, but certainly not to a foreign power that is occupying your country. So how does Jesus answer their question? First of all, he makes a statement. He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius is what a person would earn in one day work. It's one day's salary. Okay. Then he asks them two questions. Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? He answers a question with a question. Should we pay taxes? Whose, whose portrait is this on the coin? The coin that you use. What is inscribed here? And they would say, Caesar. It's Caesar's image. And his name is engraved there on the portrait or on the coin. And then Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. By the way, I think people fail to see this. Jesus does, in fact, answer the question. Yes, you should pay taxes. You should give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But somehow they seem to not catch that. But it is the second part that is far more important. Give to God what is God's. See, the coin had Caesar's image and his name on it. So give it to Caesar, it belongs to him. What has God's image and God's law written on it? We do. We are made in the image of God. So if the coin belongs to Caesar because it's his portrait, then we belong to God because we bear his image. Did they get that? Did they catch that? Jesus is calling them to repentance. Return to God. You belong to God. You bear his image. And as Paul tells us in Romans 2, even the Gentiles, he says, who do not have the law, that is the law of Moses, do by nature as required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. 
people know there are certain things you shouldn't do and certain things you should do. There's a saying, honor among thieves. People who steal for a living still have a code of honor. People know that there's right and wrong because God has inscribed his law on their hearts. Now, they can reject it. They can say, no, I'm not going to go that way. But it's there. And they bear the image of God. See, Jesus isn't just being clever. It's like, ooh. And in fact, it says they were amazed you know, at his answer. Yeah, stop being amazed. Pay attention to what he's saying. It is a call to come back to God. It's a call to repentance. Like the parable of the tenants, you have a choice. You can either say, yes, this belongs to the owner, and I owe him certain things. Or you can kill the son. And people have the same choice today. They can either acknowledge God's authority, God's ownership, or they can kill the son. If, in fact, we were only to look at verses 13 through 17, I think we might come away with a very different sense that, oh, Jesus is just too clever for these people. They think they're so smart that Jesus is smarter than them. Um, That's just looking at one small part and oftentimes out of context. Or the parable of the tenants. Oh, this is all all about Jesus, and and it is. But it is a call to repentance. It's a call to do the right thing. And they don't. I mentioned this as we began studying the Gospel of Mark, that it was some years ago, more than 40 years ago, that I started preaching verse by verse through parts of the Bible. Believing, and I still do, that if we are to understand what Scripture says, we need to look at it verse by verse by verse. And the first book that I preached through was the Gospel of Mark. I've had discussions with Tom and Dave about this. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't understand then certain things that I understand now. But the one thing that really has come home, particularly in this study, is that we must see the whole story, the big picture. If we just pick out certain parts and then paste them together, cut and paste, copy and paste and put it together, boy, you can create your own religion any day of the week. And that's what people have done. As God's people, we have to see the big picture, the whole picture, as much as we can by God's grace. And these, these incidents that are recorded here Um, these aren't about Jesus being really smart, about him being really clever. They're about him calling people to repentance, but doing it in a way that perhaps we would not. Um, He does it using questions. He, He asks them questions. By what authority do you do these things? Well, John's baptism. Heaven or for men? Do we pay taxes or not? Whose image? Whose inscription? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. 
May we, by God's grace, begin to have a sense of the big picture, the story that God is telling, beginning with creation, disrupted by the fall, now being redeemed, and one day we will be with the Lord Jesus forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, in our first hymn today, we sang, Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. In our feebleness and frailty, we oftentimes misuse your scripture, your word, your revelation. And oftentimes when we look at Jesus answering his opponents, we we tend to think of him as being quite clever. Instead of seeing his compassion and his call to repentance. Forgive us where we have failed to understand your scripture as we should. But we are in fact fallen and always in need of grace in your spirit. May we learn from the example of Jesus as we share your word, as we share your salvation with those around us. That to make proclamation oftentimes is is not the way to go, but rather to ask questions, and not to ask questions in a way that will show our superior knowledge but in a way that will cause people to think. I thank you for the passages that we studied today and how your grace is shown in each one. May we as your people be gracious to those around us as you have been to us. I thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Commit this congregation to your care and look forward to Dave speaking for us next Sunday. Thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.